Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. Many of you who know me well know that I have a, a my oldest son, is, is, uh, his name is Bennett, and uh, I, I joke that hugging Bennett is like hugging an oak tree. He's just this massive human being, just big, tall galoot of a kid, um, has this beard going on and this funky hair. He lives in Atlanta. He's a musician in Atlanta these days. And um, he and Lindsay moved down there a couple years ago. And, you know, it's just interesting to watch how your kids respond to things. And when Bennett moved to Atlanta, he and Lindsay, they, they headed out, you know, and he looked at me and said, Dad, I'm jumping in with both feet. I'm going to be a Braves fan. I'm going to be a Falcons fan. You know, I'm going to root for the, the Atlanta teams because I raised him to be a Cincinnati Red fan and a U.K. Wildcat fan. That will never change, just so you'll know because he still roots for the Wildcats, but he was going to, you know, root for the home teams down there and, and uh, just really embrace the city. And one of the things he has embraced about the city of Atlanta, you know, we talk about Atlanta traffic. He doesn't complain about Atlanta traffic. He just accepts it. It's part of his life. But one of the things that you can do to mitigate that a little bit is you can ride MARTA. I don't know if you know what MARTA is in Atlanta, but it's the transit system, um, the, the metro, you know, getting around town stuff. And so they got buses and trains and so he kept telling me, Dad, when you get down here, I want you to ride Marta with me. I want, you, I want to take you on the train. So, you know, I went to Atlanta to see my son and, and uh, you know, rode the train. And um, there's some sketchy dudes getting on that train, man. I'm not going to lie. So, and that's it, when I was really glad my son is as big as he is because I'm like, if we got to take him, I at least got somebody that's halfway decent size we can go at it. So... Um, but what's neat about MARTA is when you're waiting at the station, when you're on the platform waiting on the train to show up, to pick you up, there's a monitor there that tells you how long your wait is going to be. So if you've got a five-minute wait ahead of you, MARTA tells you your train will arrive in five minutes. Now, when I was a kid, I was working at a store called Gold Circle. It was kind of like a Target store. And... Um, one day before the store opened, they brought us up and they stood us in line like we were customers and they said, we're going to put a stopwatch on you and you're going to stand here for two minutes. Ready, go. So they, they started the stopwatch and we stood in line for two minutes and it was excruciating. You don't realize how long, you know, when you're just standing there waiting on nothing to happen, two minutes seemed like forever. And so the, the boss at the end of it, he said, now double that, Make, you know, think about standing there for four minutes. Think about staying there for six minutes. And when we're really busy, think about staying there for eight or ten minutes. When you don't have anything else to do but stand in line, it takes forever. Nobody wants to do that. So he's making the point, you know, we need to hustle and get things going. So, yeah, great point. I, you know, if you're at a train station and you don't know when the next train's coming, it would be hard to stand there just, you know, constantly checking your watch to see but when you know that the train is going to show up in five minutes or six, or even if it's 15, at least you know when the train is going to show up and you know that at least the train is coming for you. Um, today, we're going to get introduced to a couple that we don't talk an awful lot about, even at Christmas time. And if you ever really do talk about them, it's usually at Christmas. Um, this couple, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, <clears throat> and you will find their story in Luke chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to camp out there today and really for... I think most, much of the series will be there. Luke chapter 1, and we're introduced to this really cool couple who 
are not a lot unlike you and me. In some regards, they're a little different, but, but they, you know, they want the same things we want. They, they experienced in their life some of the same things some of you have experienced. And so I want to look at their story this morning together. Verse 5, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I hear pages turning. That just makes me really happy. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, king of Judea there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. And then verse 6 tells you something about their character. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. So Luke is telling us that this couple has been living right, okay? Uh, and when I say that, I'm not talking about sinless. It's not that they were sinless. It's not, that's not what blameless means. It, it doesn't mean that they don't ever mess up. That's not what it means. But as far as the overall arc of their life is concerned, you would have said that Zechariah and Elizabeth are moving toward God, not away from God. Okay, that, that, that these are people that are interested in God, they want to please God, they want to live a life that pleases God. Verse 6, both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. Now, it all sounds great, doesn't it? At that point, you know, you're like, oh, this really cool couple. And then you come to verse 7. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Now, th this would be very troubling. You know, they, they've lived holy lives, upright, faithfully serving God, and yet they had no kids. Elizabeth is struggling with infertility. And it says that she was well along in years. Now, as the story opens today, it, it opens at a point where Zachariah and Elizabeth have reached an age where having children is not an option for them. They are beyond childbearing years. There, there's no hope of them ever having children. We don't know exactly how old they were, but a good guess would put them mid to late 60s, maybe early 60s, maybe older than the 60s. And now they're older and... and the kid thing is not going to happen for them. But they've not always been old. There was a time when they were younger and they, you know, on their wedding day. I'm sure they had some idea of what their life would look like and what it would look like when kids came along. Because when you get married, that's part of it, right? You kind of anticipate the kids and what are they going to look like and how are we going to raise them and, and all that kind of stuff. And so they weren't unlike us. They probably went through the same kind of things. They, they think they're going to get married. They're going to start up a household you know, two or three or four kids are going to come along, and then they'll get older, and then their children will start having children, and, and they'll be grandparents. And yet, Zechariah and Elizabeth get to their 20s and then their 30s, and no kids. Now, we don't know how old they were when they got married. It was not uncommon for a, a female to be 14 or 15 or 16 years old in this time when, when they got married, and Young men would have been 19 or 20 or 23 maybe when they got married. We don't really know how old they were. And as life moved on and as no kids showed up, I'm sure there were people in their circle of friends and family that came alongside them, showed up, and, and, and tried to mentor them and talk to them and explain to them and, and encourage them and say, you know, don't give up. It's, it, it could still happen. I'm sure there were people in their circle that were saying there's still plenty of time. And then as they moved out of their 20s and into their 30s, you just kind of wonder what kind of things people said to them. You, you wonder what kind of wives' tales were, were expressed to Zachariah and Elizabeth. What kind of uh, home remedies were they suggested to take, you know, and to do these things and, you know, hold your ear and walk in a circle and look at the sun. I don't know what all you, you know, you're supposed to do, but 
You know, people probably started to give them all kinds of crazy advice because not so much in our day, but in their day, there was a belief that if you had had a, a life that favored God, then God would show favor to you, and the way God would show favor to you was, was through children. And then if you didn't have kids, that God was somehow showing his displeasure. God was somehow showing his lack of favor in your direction. And you just wonder if somebody in their village didn't get Zachariah alone at one point and say, hey man, what secret sin have you committed? What's going on in your life and in your world that's causing this to happen with you and, and Elizabeth? There's got to be something going on. Because if you lived a life that pleased God, then there would be kids coming along, and there are no kids coming along, so we just assume that there's something you're not telling us. What is it? And here is this poor couple, and they're saying, you know, we're, we're not perfect, but we confess our sins to God, and we try to live a life that's, that's upright and, and as blameless as it can be, and we try to live a life that's not in rebellion against God, a, a life that, that honors God and, and tells him that we love him, and, and we can't put our finger on any rebellion in our life or any real place in our life where we would say out of the ordinary that we would need to apologize to God we don't know and when they make the transition from their 30s to their 40s the people that they grew up with some of them are starting to be grandparents I mean they got started so early in that time that you know mid to late 40s it wasn't uncommon that you'd be a grandfather grandmother and then you know mid to late 50s or early 60s it wouldn't be impossible for you to be a great grandmother or great-grandfather and if you were to pull elizabeth aside and ask her what are some of the, the emotions that you're feeling i think she might say longing she, she might use the word disappointment but she probably would say shame disgrace because now people in their town have started to look at zachariah and elizabeth skeptically because they aren't having kids. Shame. Disgrace. Scripture makes it clear that this is not the case. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children. Does this trouble you? Because I, I think it troubled them. When you're doing everything you know to do and you wait and you wait and you finally get to the point where you say, the train is never going to stop. The train is never going to come through and it's not going to stop at this platform. We're going to wait here forever and it's not going to happen. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. What, what would that have looked like? For sure, living in Palestine would have meant that they would have, would have observed the Sabbath. Sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, and that meant that all the work that they would get done in a normal week would have to be done in the first six days, and then where other people might do it in seven, they had to get everything done in six days, because on that Sabbath day, they did not work. It was downtime, and they observed it. I think Zachariah and Elizabeth guarded their heart. I think they guarded the Sabbath. I think that was an important day for them. In their culture, they would have dedicated themselves to something we call the tithe, which is a setting aside of 10%, not just of your income, but of everything. They would have, they would have observed the tithe. And I imagine that Elizabeth and Zechariah did that, and they go through their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, and there's no pregnancy and there are no kids. Elizabeth, what do you feel? 
What are you experiencing? I experience longing, disappointment, shame, and disgrace because of what people think about Zachariah and me. They lived holy and upright lives, and yet they did not have children. I don't know if that bothers you. I'm pretty sure it bothered them. As we look in on the story today, Zechariah is packing. He is getting ready to go to Jerusalem for his one week of responsibility as a priest in the temple at Jerusalem. This is fascinating. I want you to understand what's going on here. It's a great background thing. Uh, I don't know if you caught it or not, but in verse 5, the second part, it says, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So there were 24 of these divisions. See, when I was 19 years old, I decided that I was going to go into ministry. I've told you this story. I was, uh, when I was 18 and fresh out of high school, I was going to go to Northern Kentucky University, and I was going to learn how to program mainframe computers, and I was going to be a computer programmer and drive a Porsche. That was my life ambition. You want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And so I went to Northern Kentucky University, and I had a, a Japanese professor that I didn't understand. I'm sure he was brilliant, but I didn't understand him. And this was back when you had the, the modem where you put the receiver in the modem. You remember that? Didn't know a thing about what I was doing. I would go to this computer lab and just completely lost. And as you might imagine, a, a kid that is that lost and trying to find his way through school and doesn't, can't get it done, and I really wasn't ready to go to college, to, truth be told, and they invited me not to come back. Yeah, yeah, that's being, that's being kind. And so at 19, I decided that I was going to go into ministry, and it was the best decision I've ever made, and ministry's been very good to me. But in that culture, you didn't pick ministry, ministry picked you. You were born into it. You were born into a certain family, and by birth, you became, that was, that was just what you did. You were, you were in a division of this, the priests, and his was the division of Abijah. But it wasn't your full-time job. And the way this worked was there were 24 divisions of priests, and you would travel to Jerusalem to do your week's duty, and then you would come back and you would do your day job. And maybe six months later, you would go back for another week's duty. So if, if you were in the priestly rotation, you would have two weeks a year where you were expected to be in Jerusalem. They split those up by about six months. And then on top of that, there was Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of, uh, of uh, Tabernacles, which were pretty big feasts, and that meant all hands on deck. So five weeks out of the year, you were expected to show up in Jerusalem to dispatch your priestly duties, and then you went home and you, you did your, your day job. So as we look in on Zechariah today, he is on his way to do his week service with his group, and that's where the story picks up in verse 8. Okay, so are you with me? Here we go, verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot. So apparently there's some kind of lottery system where this happened. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So while Zechariah is inside offering, burning this incense and offering prayers, the, there are people on the outside that are offering up prayers as well. So we need to talk a little bit about the temple in first century Jerusalem. 
If you were to go to first century Jerusalem today and you were to stand on something called the Mount of Olives and look back on this city, this is what you would see. And what you see there, that gold dome, is the, the Dome of the Rock. And if you are a part of the, the religion of, of, of uh, Islam, if you are a Muslim, then that is the third most precious, third most holy site in your world. And that comes uh, third to Mecca and Medina, which you would find in Saudi Arabia. But that is what you would find if you were to go to the Mount of Olives and look back on the city today. In the first century, had you stood on that hilltop and looked toward the city, you would be looking at the temple compound, and it would have looked something like this. Herod the Great had spent decades uh, working on this, and he spent a ton of money to get this together. There, the, the temple, it was elaborate, all these colonnades and these courtyards, and the temple itself is not really a massive area. You can see that circled part. That's really the temple area. You can tell it's relative to everything else. It's not huge, but, but uh, it, you know, it's, it's been refurbished, and it's, it's this area that's been kind of set up, and the people didn't gather or congregate there. Only the priests could go in there. The people would congregate on the outsides in the courtyards. And as, as they were outside, the priests would go in, and they would do things in the temple. And if you go into the temple, and you go into the first room, it's, this first room is called the holy place. And in the holy place, there's not a whole lot in there, but there's a lampstand that burned all the time. There was also a table that had fresh bread on it, the table of showbread. And then there was an altar of incense where the priest would offer the morning prayers and he would offer incense on the altar. And that was in conjunction with the morning and evening prayers. And that, they, he, as he, you know, the idea was he would offer this incense. It would rise up to, to the heavens and, and the prayers of the people would rise up to the heavens and God would hear all that. Now, you would not have been allowed to do this, but if you were to go through the curtain into the backmost room, you would have entered into the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, and there you would have found one of these. This is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, Ark means box, and Covenant means promise. So, literally, we're talking about the box of promises, and in the Ark of the Covenant, you would have found the Ten Commandments, and this represented the agreement that God made with his people where he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. This was an agreement. This was a promise that God had made. It's not unlike a marriage ceremony where, you know, someone says, I'm going to be your wife and he says, I'm going to be your husband. It's, it's a, you know, there, there, there's an agreement. There, there's a, they're going through the ceremony. And, and so that's what the, the, the ark is. It's the box of promises, literally. Now, in pagan temples, if they had anything that resembled a, a holy of holies, if you went in there, you would not find a box like that. What you would find is some statue that had been carved, and it would represent whatever god you served, whether it was Artemis or Zeus or, or maybe Poseidon or Athena. But in the holy of holies, you did not find a statue. It would have been against the Ten Commandments to do that. Don't make a graven image. So what they had in there was the, the, the box of promises, the Ark of the Covenant. I will be your God, you will be my people. It was a constant reminder for them. The Ark of the Covenant was a reminder that they were God's chosen people. So you have the holy place with the candlesticks and the incense and the altar, and on the other side is the Holy of Holies where you had the Ark of the Covenant that represented that you were God's chosen people. And that all sounds great, doesn't it? Isn't that all good? That's all good. No. 
Because in Jesus' day, Israel had two capitals. There was the spiritual or the religious capital, which was Jerusalem, and then there was the capital up, up north, which was the political capital, um, and it was uh, kind of on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and that was Caesarea. Now, if that sounds familiar, Caesarea has a name in it. It is Caesar. And so this is named after Caesar Augustus. Rome had conquered Israel, and they let you keep the religious capital in Jerusalem. They, they kind of threw that bone to them. But the seat of power was no longer Jerusalem, it was Caesarea, and the Romans collected Roman taxes, and they would cripple you as a family. These taxes were, were a burden, they were a big burden, they were, it made it hard for you to really provide for your family, and, and it, th these taxes went to fund the Roman war machine, and to fund the, the opulent lifestyle of the Caesars and the people that were in government, and um, so... You look at that map and you say, well, at least they got up to Caesarea and they left Jerusalem and they probably left them alone, right? No, they didn't leave them alone. Let me show you another picture of the courtyard. And, and in the corner over there, you see that thing that's circled uh, on the other side of the courtyard. I showed you the holy place and the holy of holies, but then you go across the courtyard and you see that circled thing. That is the fortress of Antonia. The fortress of Antonia. The, the Romans had that put there. And that is named after Mark Anthony. And so the, the, the people are worshiping down below in the courtyard. And while they're worshiping and gathering in the courtyard, what they would have seen as they looked up over those colonnades, you can kind of see that artist's rendition is you can see troops, you can see soldiers looking over down onto the people below. The reason that they put that fort there is because the temple was a huge place, had lots of people gathering and milling around and talking, and what happens when you get a lot of people that are of the same mind, and especially if it's a religious thing sometimes, it can, you know, they get excited, and when they get excited, they can get animated, when they get animated, they can get a little rebellious, and so the fortress of Antonia was there to make sure that these religious people did not lose their mind and get rebellious. And the Romans could have a, a, a bunch of soldiers in the courtyard in a matter of seconds to put down any kind of rebellion that might have grown up out of, out of this large gathering of people that were there. So if you're a first century Jew and you were there and you're standing between the two circles that I'm showing you now, if you're standing somewhere between those two circles, there's an Ark of the Covenant on one side of you saying you are God's chosen people and on the other side is the fortress of Antonia and the Romans reminding you that your little brother... We own you. We rule over you. You, you just worship whatever you want. We don't care about that. Just so long as you know we're going to get your tax money and we're going to be the boss. You are occupied by a superpower. On the one side is the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant representing I will never leave you or forsake you. And on the other side stands Fortress Antonia which basically says God has completely forgotten you and God has completely abandoned you. On the one side is the Ark of the Covenant and it says, I have a plan for you. I have a direction for your life. You are my treasure. And on the other side is a reminder that you can barely feed your kids because the Roman taxes are crippling you. And you're in the middle. And on one side you've got the ark, and on the other side you've got Fortress Antonia, and you're standing in a place that is best described as hope on one side and despair on the other. 
Is that familiar space for any of you this morning? Hope on one side, despair on the other. Do any of you know anything about that space? See, on the one hand, if I were to look at some of you and ask you, do you know Jesus, you would say, yes, I I know Jesus. And if I were to ask you what that means to you, you would say something along the lines of, it means that I am a beloved son or daughter. It means that I am his prized creation. It means that he died on a cross to save me and he's come to live inside me and he's changing me from the inside out. He has a plan for me. He's working in me. Oh, really? Look in the other direction and describe for me what you're experiencing. Well, Brett, to be honest with you, I'm getting crushed right now. Things are not going well for me. Life's not good. Have you ever had to live in the space between hope and disappointment? In the past month alone, I have talked to and dealt with many of you in this room this morning, and you are dealing with stuff that is just simply life-crushing. My job much of the time is praying for people and saying to God, God, I want to help, but I don't know how to help. I I know they're going through something. I feel horrible. God, there's not a thing I can do, and I'm just begging you to help these people. And on one side, you would say, I know God loves me. I know he came here for me. And on the other side, it's just crushing. It's loss. It's sickness. It's problems. It's stuff that just will not go away and it will not leave you alone and you don't, you don't see an end to it. We exist in this space where we have the love of God, the mercy of God, and we believe and hope in him. And on the other side, somebody's saying, yeah, I don't know if my mom is going to make it to the new year. If things don't go well for us this Christmas, I may not have a job come the new year. That's the space in which we live, the space between the Holy of Holies and Fortress Antonia, between I am chosen and loved and adopted by God and I am getting killed here. Listen to me. This is dangerous space for your soul. This is dangerous space for your heart. It is a battleground for your heart. And many of you will lose your faith in this space if you are not careful. You will experience disappointment that is so vast and so crippling that it hampers or erases your faith in the goodness and mercy of God. Some of you run the risk of losing your faith in this space that you stand. It wasn't just a challenge for the Israelites standing in the courtyard between Fortress Antonia and the Ark. It's it's Zachariah and Elizabeth's challenge, a challenge to cling to hope that God is good and that he cares deeply about them when they have known disappointment for decades. That's all they've known when it comes to this kid thing. There's no kid. And it's my hope that the challenges that you are experiencing would drive you to God and not that, that your problems would drive you away from God. I hope that in the middle of the mess that you would experience the goodness of God and the presence and the faithfulness of God, even though there is a very real evidence in your life right now that things are going very, very badly. When you find yourself between hope and despair, your heart is at risk. 
Not everyone survives this space with their faith intact. But as Zechariah goes into the holy place to offer the incense, Luke tells us in verse 10 that there were people outside in the courtyard and they were praying. The priestly duty of offering incense was a great privilege. And if you happen to be to win the lottery and you got selected to go in and offer the incense in the tabernacle, in the temple, it was a great honor, but you only got to do that one time. And after you dispatched that duty one time, they took your name out of the hat and you were never eligible to go in and do that again. So Zachariah's time is this time. And, and when you think of incense, I don't know what you think of when you think of incense. You probably think of that stick stuff that you used to get at Spencer Gifts, remember? The store you're not supposed to go into, or at least your mom, you didn't want your mom to know you went in that store because they sold stuff in there you weren't supposed to see. But somewhere between the black light posters and the lava lamps, you found incense, right? You found that stick incense that, that when you light it on fire, it stinks to high heavens. Why we buy that stuff beyond, who would buy that? Somebody does because they sell it. And so when you hear incense, I think that might be what you, what you think about, but that's not what Zechariah is lighting on fire. Zechariah would have carried in something different. He would have carried in these glowing hot coals and he would have laid these down on the altar and, and they would be really hot and then he would take this incense powder and he would dump this incense powder on these hot coals and when he would do that, this billowing smoke would come up and it would billow up and out and the aroma would fill the presence of anybody close to it. You would see it, there was a visual, there was a sensual thing with your your nose, you could smell it. It was, a, it, was a, it was an experience. And it rose up to the heavens the way it was symbolic of the prayers. Anytime you see incense in Scripture, it's symbolic of the prayers of God's people going up to heaven. And outside the people are praying, and the imagery is that as the smoke goes up, the prayers go up, and they would drift upward. The, the people who were outside praying, the same people who could look up, look up and see a Roman fort next to their temple, no doubt many of them were praying, God, send us a deliverer. Send us someone who will save us from that. Send us someone who will give us our country back and let us worship the way we really want to and take these taxes away from us and make our life easier. God, send us that person. God, you made us a promise that you would send us a Savior and we're waiting for that Savior to come rescue his people. And Zechariah goes in to offer this incense and the people are praying outside and they're still waiting on a platform and they still hope and think that the train is going to come and stop at their station. You know, one of the thoughts that Zechariah had to have as he went in to do this offering of the, the incense was, Elizabeth is never going to believe that I got to do this. I mean, this was a big deal. And then something happened that was out of the ordinary, and we have a tendency to read this stuff and blow right by it, and it's my job to make sure we stop and see it. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him. See, I just did it. Let's slow down. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, this is not an everyday occurrence. I don't know how many times an angel has appeared to you, but that's never happened to me. Now, we aren't told what Zachariah's response was, but if you put on your sanctified imaginator and you ask yourself, 
what would my reaction have been had I been standing there doing this priestly thing, which was really cool anyway, and then I look over and there's this angelic being standing there appearing to me? I venture to say you'd be freaked out. This is a rare thing. Often God would speak his message through prophets or prophetesses, men and women who would come and they would, they would speak God's message. And, and, but once in a while, God would bypass that system altogether. He would take human beings completely out of the, the loop and he would just straight from heaven send an angelic being, some kind of angel type being, and you know, they would come and they would deliver the message. And the middleman just got completely taken out. And that was the case with Zechariah. Verse 12, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled, that's an understatement, and was gripped with fear. What would you do? I mean, we don't even have a category. I don't even know what I would do if that happened to me. Neither, Zechariah didn't have a clue what to do. And the angel gives a message to Zechariah, and as I read this, I want you to imagine that you are Zechariah, and you are trying to absorb this, okay? So this angel's going to speak. I want you just, you might even want to close your eyes and just try to imagine being there. You're doing this priestly thing. It's a big deal. You're, you're, you're in a spiritual mode anyway. And then this angel shows up, and this is what he says to you. Try to wrap your head around this. Do not be afraid, Zachariah. No, I won't be afraid. You're some dude. I have no idea what this is standing next to me, but I'm not going to be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, which would preclude some of you from being John. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. And then we come to verse 16. He will bring back, if you've got a pen, circle that. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. John's mission statement, you just read it, is going to be to bring people home. To get them to come home. Verse 17. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Can you imagine Zachariah's thoughts? We're going to have a what? A what? God, do you know how old I am? This message is not just for this couple. We, we believe that, you know, they, they don't think they're ever going to have kids. They're going to have a child. It's not just a child. This is going to be a special child, and he will get the name John. Okay, so let's jump ahead 30 years, and before Jesus begins his public ministry and he begins to teach and heal, there's this person who appears on the scene, and his name is John, and he gets the people ready for the chosen one who's going to come. He is not the one. He's getting everybody ready for the one. And John is this man. He's dressed in camel skin. He eats locusts and honey really a strange dude. He lives this ascetic lifestyle. He appears in the desert, preaching by the Jordan River, and all these people are trekking down there to hear him talk. And the more he talks, the more they get convicted and the more they want to change the way they're living. And they start confessing to one another and talking about how they want to be better. And John starts to baptize them in the Jordan River. It's just this really cool spiritual thing that's happening. And that was John the Baptist. That's the guy we know as John the Baptist. 
Zachariah and Elizabeth, this faithful, shamed couple, they will be John the Baptist's parents. And it is here that Zechariah says, God, thank you, thank you. We've been waiting so long for this. Is that what Zechariah says? No. That's not what Zechariah says. Zechariah said to ask the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. In other words, are you kidding me? Have you seen Elizabeth? What are you talking about? And so the angel says to Zechariah, you know, I know it's, it's okay. I know this is a lot to absorb. It's no problem. Just take a minute. You know, here's a bag. Breathe into it. You know, just, just relax. It's going to be okay. That's not what the angel says either. No, Zechariah is in trouble. Verse 19. <coughs> the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So Zachariah's mouth just gets locked up. He can't talk, he can't speak. He's not going to be able to speak until this child is born. So it didn't take that long to go in and light incense and offer prayers. It really didn't take that long, but... It, Zechariah's in there a long time and the people are outside and they're praying and they're waiting on Zechariah to come back out and he doesn't come out and they wait and they wait no Zechariah finally Zechariah emerges and he can't speak verse 21 meanwhile the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple when he came out he could not speak to them they realized he had, been, he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So all Zechariah can do is play charades. That's all he's got. He finishes, his out, he finishes out his week of service, then he heads home to Elizabeth, okay? So get the picture. He's been gone for a week, away from his wife. Cue the Marvin Gaye, Right? Verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Why would she do this? Maybe she doesn't want people to know she's pregnant. No, no, no. You would do that toward the end, right, when you start to show. You don't want to be seen. Maybe, maybe you would try to hide then. But it doesn't make sense that she would do it early on. We don't really know why she went into seclusion. Is she worshiping? Is she pondering? Is she awestruck? Look at the next verse. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor, underline this, ta and taken away my disgrace among the people. And no longer is the camera focused on Zechariah. Now the camera focuses in on Elizabeth. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. She gets quiet, she gets thoughtful, and the story closes. And before we go home today, I just want to I want to go through three words with you real quick. Just think about three words for a minute. The first word is this, disappointment. It seems to me life seems to show me that anyone God is going to use effectively, he sends through periods of disappointment. You experience these times of great and deep disappointment 
that bring you to the brink of brokenness so that God can prepare you to help people who are on the brink of brokenness and deep disappointment. What did we do wrong? It is common for God's people to go through periods of deep disappointment and wonder, what did I do wrong? When they may have done nothing wrong, but God is getting them ready to help somebody else who's going through deep disappointment. It is the cost, listen to me, listen to me. It is the cost of doing ministry. You've got to be broken. You've got to be disappointed You've got to be hurt, you've got to be wounded, you've got to be broken down sometimes, you've got to go through stuff in order for you to know what people go through so that you can help people in times of deep brokenness and disappointment. Why we expect people to go through life and not go through those times, but expect them to be a a blessing to someone else in ministry is beyond me. I don't get that. My experience is, oh, Brett, you want to help them? Let me show you what that's like. Let me show you what that's like. My most recent one has been a gallbladder. I used to hear people say they've got gallbladder trouble. Oh, I, I feel sorry for them. No, now when you tell me you've got a gallbladder problem, dude, I'm praying for you, right? <laughs> I am praying for you because I know what that's like. So disappointment, I've got to hurry, got to hurry. Second word is timing. God's timing is not our timing, and we get disappointed you know, we, we, it's like God said to him, no, no, I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to fulfill my promise, but you're going to have to wait, and you're not going to see it right away. See, I don't like that. I want it now. God bless me now. God says, no, I may bless your kids. It may be your grandkids. It may be your great-grandkids. You may never see the blessing, Brett, that I'm going to pour out because of something you've done or because of the way I want to bless you. It may be your kids down the line. We don't like that. This idea of rewarding us now. We, we want everything now. God's timing is not always our timing, and that frustrates us. That frustrates me. Last word is this, home. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. That was the job description of John the Baptist, the son that would be born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. He is going to bring people, help make the way for the one that would bring them home to God through Jesus. I want to wrap up by saying this. Many of you have been going to this church for a long time. You're saved. You love God. You're going to heaven. That's wonderful. I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to those of you who've been messing around with this, flirting around with this, and it's time to do something, right? Time to do something. You know God's calling you. It's time to come home. And you know this isn't about keeping rules, and you know this isn't about being religious. I've knocked myself out to prove to you and show you that that's not what this is about. This is about having your life set free from sin, not having to worry about it anymore, to be forgiven, to come home. God is a good parent. He's just like you, a good parent. When it's Christmas, you want your kids home, right? You want to see them. You want to hug them. I want to wrap my arms around my kids because I'm a good dad. That's God. And he misses you. And you've wandered off and you're out doing Lord knows what. And he's saying, come home to me. And he waits. He waits. So I'm going to pray for you. Some of you who've just been putting this off or not, you know, you just don't know, I'm thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Do it. I'm going to have the band come out. I'm going to pray. They're going to come out and play us out. I'm going to be right down here. If you want to give your life to Jesus or you want to come even just talk to me more about it, I'll be right here. All you do is come see me.
You know, it doesn't have to be me. It can be somebody else you know. It can be another pastor. If you don't like me, go to another pastor. Get to somebody that can help you. Let's pray and uh, we'll sing. Father, I pray for the one that needs to come home this morning. I pray that you would help them to see what this is about and what this isn't about. And this isn't about being some goody two-shoes that keeps a list of things. And it's not about performance and it's not about how good I am and can I be good enough. God, it's not about any of that. It is about I am a sinner. My life is full of junk and I need to be forgiven. And it is weighing me down. And I, I need to be set free and I need to be forgiven. And God, you went to a cross and you bled and died to take all that away from us. And for some strange reason, we run from that. Why? So Father, this morning, we, we just, we proclaim to you that you are our God. We tell you that we love you. And Father, for the people in here who've never given their life to Jesus, I pray that today would be the day that they say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm done running away. I'm running to God. I'm not running from God. And God, we call them home, home to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.